we begin with Isaiah. And uh, the word Isaiah, the name Isaiah means Yahweh will save. Okay, the Lord will save. And uh, the name is even cognate to Jesus' name, Yeshua, uh, which means the Lord will save, as the angel said, because uh, he will save his people from their sins. So same, same root words involved there. And uh, Isaiah is a giant of the prophets. Um, his is the longest of the literary prophets in terms of the amount of material, 66 chapters. Um, his is also the Old Testament book that is most quoted in the New Testament. Okay. Now, in terms of uh, Jesus quoting, Jesus more frequently quoted the Psalms, but of the old, whole New Testament, Isaiah is the one that is quoted most. Uh, and it's also the one that's used, the, the Old Testament book that's used most in our uh, lectionary, um, in our pericopal system for preaching. Okay, uh, you can essentially divide up the book of Isaiah into two major sections, chapters 1 to 39, which is primarily his message of imminent judgment upon the southern kingdom, uh, of the coming exile, okay? Uh, imminent means that uh, this is something that will come here uh, within the next, a uh, couple of centuries, whereas uh, chapters 40 to 66 is the return from exile, okay? And uh, so this will take place, you know, over two centuries later here after the Babylonian captivity, kind of a new exodus here. So um, the, the first part, chapters 1 to 39, contain both law and gospel, but especially judgment, more of the law. Chapters 40 to 66 contain both law and gospel, but gospel predominates in those chapters, uh, more of a message of comfort, of hope. Uh, very conveniently, just as a kind of mnemonic device, uh, these chapters correspond with the number of books in the Bible. There are 66 books in the Bible, and there are 39 in the uh, Old Testament, 17 in the New Testament. So the books of the Bible, 1 to 39, are Old Testament, 40 to 66, are New Testament. And um, uh, so that might be a helpful mnemonic device for you. Now. Um, because of this distinction between chapters 1 to 39 and chapters 40 to 66, and the significant gap of time in terms of what is being spoken to here, um, some have postulated that there are actually two Isaiahs, okay? One that speaks here in the 8th century and one who speaks in the 6th century, 200 years later. And the one who speaks in the 6th century then would be chapters 40 to 66, speaking to the exiles. 
and they'll say uh, this is reasonable for many reasons, uh, one of which is because um, there's some very precise language here about hope for people in Exodus, uh, in the exile here, uh, and the deliverer being Cyrus, named by name, who the deliverer will be. And so they say uh, that must happen much more uh, closely to the date in which it actually happened than two centuries earlier. Okay. Well, um, our LCMS position is that there is only one Isaiah. Um, and we say so because we have no problem with predictive prophecy. That the Holy Spirit could inspire someone two centuries earlier to, with great precision, speak about the exile and the situation conditions of the exile, and even name by name, who will be the deliverer, who will conquer the Babylonian captives and uh, release the people to return and build the temple. So uh, we have no problem theologically with that. God can do uh, that supernatural act of predictive prophecy. That's not a problem for us. Okay. Um, also, some will say, well, there's differences between the style. Chapters 1 to 39, chapters 40 to 66. Chapters 40 to 66 are highly poetic and masterpieces of Hebrew poetry. Uh, chapter 39 uh, has some prophetic oracles, but is primarily um, a lot of history. Okay. Well, I, I would say, again, it's, it's the nature of the material here. Uh, there's two different kinds of foci. And much of this is narrative. I shouldn't say mostly, but a lot of it is narrative. Uh, and so it's just a different approach that's taken. And the same author can change his style depending on the um, uh, kind of focus of his subject matter. Uh, one thing that is clear is that there is a lot of stylistic similarity between chapters 1 and 39 and chapters 40 to 66. Um, so much so that even those who claim that there are two Isaiahs, or there are some who say three, but we'll not get into that, um, say that the second Isaiah, the later Isaiah, tried to imitate the first one. Okay. Well, that's kind of circular thinking, reasoning there, where you say uh, there's two of them because there's stylistic differences, but where you see stylistic similarities, you say, well, one's trying to emulate the other. It, it just isn't very uh, logical thinking. Okay. Finally, I think uh, an important factor for us in confessing one Isaiah is the fact that uh, Jesus cites both sections and simply says, Isaiah says. Okay. So on the authority of Jesus, he makes no distinction between the two, quoting from both sections as from the same author. And there is no textual evidence of a division. So the earliest textual material that we have um, has one Isaiah. Uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, you have the whole Isaiah scroll 
and uh, there's no distinction between this earlier and second section. Well, for the sake of your exam, they're, they're not going to be going into the questions of first and second Isaiah. But what you do need to recognize is the hinge here is between chapter 39 and chapter 40. And before that, it focuses on the judgment that will come in the exile. After that, it focuses on the hope in returning from the exile. Okay. So uh, here you have the timeline, and you see that Isaiah is one of the earlier literary prophets in the southern kingdom. He is a contemporary with Hosea in the northern kingdom, and also a contemporary in the southern kingdom with Micah. Okay? And Isaiah is oftentimes called the city prophet and Micah the country prophet. They're contemporaries, but Isaiah has his operations in the city of Jerusalem, whereas Micah operates out in the country in the small towns and so forth. Isaiah, we know, uh, was married. And the text says that he's married to a prophetess. And uh, it's unclear whether that means that she is actually uh, one who is a mouthpiece of the Lord or simply the wife of a prophet. But uh, uh, that's what is indicated. And uh, most likely he had uh, at least two sons. Uh, he is of the priestly line, a Levite, and a descendant of Aaron and thus has access into the temple, which will become very important, as we'll see here. But he also has access to the palace and the royalty. And he can come and speak directly to the king, whether it be Ahaz or Hezekiah. He has a very, very long length, uh, uh, time of influence here, uh, primarily to these two kings, Ahaz and Hezekiah, he will speak. And he has entree into the throne room to speak to the human king. Okay? In chapter 6, we have the call, Yahweh's call of Isaiah described here. And uh, Isaiah, as carrying out priestly duties, is in the temple, in the holy place. And suddenly, he is transported from the earthly temple into the heavenly temple. Okay? Remember, the earthly temple is kind of the connecting point between heaven and earth. So now he's transported, and he sees the very throne of God. And uh, he's surrounded by seraphim. And uh, these are angelic beings of a high rank, possibly the equivalent of cherubim, but he sees and hears the real thing. And uh, they are singing and praising, holy, 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 Yahweh, Yahweh, Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Okay, it's the same thing that we sing as we enter into the presence of the Lord to receive his very body and blood in preparation for Holy Communion. Okay. So he sees the Holy God on his throne. He hears the seraphim singing, and he says, Woe am I. Woe is me. 
I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people who are unclean. I am a sinner. How can I stand before the holy God? I mean, he knows his theology that those who are unholy cannot abide in the presence of the holy God. And so he's expecting just to be kind of blown away and become just kind of a grease spot on the back wall here from the holiness of God. But God in his mercy sends a seraphim who takes a coal from the altar of burnt offering. Remember in the tabernacle and temple, that was the one right next to the curtain entering into the, the, the holy of holies. Uh, okay, so now in the real thing, there is the, the um, uh, altar of incense, and he takes a coal from that altar and, and tongues and brings it and touches the lip, lips of Isaiah and says, you now are clean. God has, by his grace, a means of grace, if you will, taken away your sin, absolved you. You can stand before him. And that's the only reason why we can stand before God as well, is by his gracious absolution uh, through his means of grace to us as well. But his lips are specifically purified by this coal because he says, I am a man of unclean lips, but also because he is now being consecrated to be one who is the mouthpiece of Yahweh. The Lord will use his lips to communicate his message. And so what we see then uh, continuing is uh, the voice comes forth from the throne. Whom shall I send? Who will go forth for me as my agent, my ambassador? And Isaiah perhaps looks around, well, who else? <laughs> I'm the only one here. But he willingly says, here am I, Lord. Send me. I'll be your messenger. And so this is the call of Isaiah. And it is a call that you need to be familiar with because uh, the details of that call may appear on the exam. But it's an important one. So with Isaiah now, he is brought before the throne room of the Lord. His lips are purified by the burning coal, which now sanctifies and consecrates him for prophetic ministry in that calling. But in that calling then, and uh, uh, we see this also in the earlier chapters of Isaiah, um, God makes very clear to Isaiah that his ministry is not going to be successful by human standards. The people will not listen, they will not see, they will not understand. Okay. So just be prepared, Isaiah. You will go forth, but it's going to be like speaking to a stone wall. The people aren't going to believe you, they're not going to follow you, they're not going to accept what you say. But that doesn't matter. You say what I have called you to say. You speak what I put upon your lips. That is your call. That is your mission. So he forewarns him right away, and uh, this comes true. 
in a sense, uh, what we see here in the call of Isaiah is played out in the chapters 1 to 39, the people's rejection of that message. The message will also be one of the coming captivity of the Judahites, uh, the judgment upon Jerusalem and Judah, so that message of law. Um, but there will also be a message of hope, uh, temporary deliverance and respite, most specifically to Hezekiah. Okay, Remember yesterday we talked about Hezekiah, king of the south? Okay, What was Hezekiah's predicament, dilemma? Yeah. He believed, but he sometimes had, um, he was a man of faith, but sometimes he uh, wavered a little bit. Okay. But he always came back. Okay. Sometimes he wavered by um, um, getting into alliances, you know, trusting in alliances. But essentially he was faithful. But he was in dire straits, specifically in one situation. And the Assyrians had surrounded Jerusalem. Okay. Remember, Jerusalem was besieged by the Assyrians under Emperor Sennacherib, the Assyrians. And Hezekiah pleaded to the Lord to deliver, um, used covenantal language, claimed the covenant in his petition to the Lord. And it was Isaiah then who came to Hezekiah with the word of the Lord and said, you will be delivered. And he says it's Jerusalem will be delivered for the sake of the Davidic dynasty. Okay. In, in honor of the Davidic dynasty here. That's one of the reasons why it will be delivered. And you remember then the angel of the Lord went through the Assyrian camp and slew 185,000 that evening. So what you have here then are some occasions where um, Isaiah is used to announce uh, immediate deliverance to the people of Judah, to the king of Judah. Another instance is with Ahaz, when Ahaz is setting up um, preparations for war with the Syrians and the northern kingdom. Uh, Isaiah comes and announces God's promise to be present with them during that. Uh, but ultimately, God's not just temporary deliverance, the final deliverance. Deliverance through the son of David, the Messiah. And uh, he also foretells then the messianic age. And uh, we've seen some images of that as well from other prophets, uh, particularly Amos. We've seen this already. The messianic age where the Messiah will tend to his people like a shepherd Okay, a faithful shepherd. And it will be a new Eden where you have the lion lying down with the lamb. And so the images here of the animals living together in peace. Okay, um, That the people will abide by the covenant of the Lord and live in wisdom. And he will be their king. Okay, It all surrounds the king, the Davidic king. So you have a lot of the uh, messianic promises here, promises of the messianic kingdom and uh, the restoration of the new heaven and new earth uh, 
the new Eden in uh, Isaiah. Okay, so um, a couple of important sections of Isaiah, the, the earlier part. Um, in chapters 7 through 11, you have the promise of Emmanuel. Okay, the promise of Emmanuel. And uh, the earlier section, chapters 1 through 39, the main focus of his message is to afflict the comfortable. So think of it that way. Chapters 1 to 39 primarily afflicts the comfortable. Judah is complacent and comfortable in their sin, apathetic to the covenant, and so primarily afflicts the comfortable. Whereas the latter section, 40 to 66, comforts the afflicted. So it looks forward to when they are afflicted by the exile that they will be comforted. So chapter 40, verses 1 begins, Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Nonetheless, even in the earlier section where you have the affliction upon the comfortable, there's also gospel and comfort to the afflicted. And one of these incidents, or sections I should say, is in chapters 7 through 11 called the promise of Emmanuel. And uh, that name is a significant name. What does Emmanuel mean? Okay, God with us. Okay, God with us. L is God. Uh, Emmanuel is uh, with us. So with us, God. God's presence with us. Promise of that. And uh, this appears several times in chapters 1 through 11. Um, first case is in chapter 7. And a very, very familiar prophecy here, oftentimes is cited during Christmas time. Uh, the evangelist Matthew quotes this and says that it's fulfilled in the virgin birth of Jesus. Okay, and uh, but the historical circumstance is a war uh, that is pending. It's called the Syro-Ephraimatic War. 735 BC, and it's an alliance between Syria, thus the Syro, and the northern kingdom, which is oftentimes called Ephraim. Uh, the one tribe of Ephraim is kind of the, the representative tribe for all the other ten, uh, nine tribes. So it's the, the alliance between Damascus and Samaria, those two kingdoms, uh, they are wishing to throw off tribute from Assyria, to throw off uh, the um, being under the foot of Assyria, to rebel against Assyria, and they want Judah to be a part of this. Ahaz is the king, and Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to join your alliance. Okay. Um, and so Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel, Ephraim, begin, first of all, to uh, make plans to attack Judah and attack Jerusalem. 
And it's at this time then that King Ahaz is making preparations for war. And he's checking out the walls. He's checking out the water source, uh, uh, the, the tunnel for the water and so forth, uh, just making sure that everything's ready for a siege. They're expecting a siege. And while he's checking out uh, all of these um, necessities and preparation for war, uh, he's actually uh, out looking at the water source. Isaiah comes up and he says to Ahaz, Ahaz, don't worry. Don't sweat it. Yahweh will take care of you. You don't need to prepare. Just trust the Lord and he will protect you. This is his word through me to you. Trust me. And um, Isaiah even goes further. The Lord is graciously going to reinforce this by giving you opportunity to ask for a sign. So ask for a sign, any sign. It could be as high as heaven above or as low as the depths of the earth. Any sign, just to kind of get confirmation that God's going to, to do this. He could write a message in the sky or whatever. Just ask it. And suddenly Ahaz, who's never been very loyal to the Lord and not very, very faithful to the covenant, becomes highly religious. And he says, oh no, I could never test the Lord by asking a sign. <laughs> and Isaiah gets mad because God gets mad. Okay, you're not testing the Lord. The Lord has offered this to you. This is the Lord speaking to you. And he says, will you test the Lord any longer, O house of David? Therefore, a sign will be given to you. A virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son, and his name will be Emmanuel. Okay? So, notice that um, the message here is one of hope and deliverance, but it's one in which God expresses frustration, not simply at Ahaz, because he says, O house of David, and so the message here will go forth to the whole dynasty down through the ages. He says this will be the sign of God's protection and provision, deliverance of his people. The ultimate sign, not just for you, Ahaz, but for the whole dynasty down through the ages. When you see this sign, the virgin conceiving, giving birth to a son. And when he comes, you know most fully that God is with us. God will protect us. So it's a very um, real and immediate historical event, but now it transcends, transcends that historical event and looks ahead for all the generations to the ultimate hope and ultimate deliverer one born of a virgin, that will be God with us, okay? So that's an important passage here, uh, the promise of Emmanuel. Another one will come in chapter 9. This is also oftentimes um, read at Christmas time. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. 
For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his rule there shall be no end. For he shall reign on David's throne, establishing it forever. So uh, what we have here then also is this prophecy of, again, one born of a woman, a child, um, the seed of the woman, going back to Eve. The deliverer would be the offspring of the woman, but an, a child, a son, um, and, but he's just not any son. He's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God. He's human but divine, mighty God. Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and his rule will be an everlasting rule of the increase of his uh, dominion and reign. There shall be no end. He will be the ultimate fulfillment of that Davidic covenant, covenant made with David of the dynasty of David. So here you have in Isaiah so many of these uh, prophecies that had their kind of embryonic form earlier in this sense of developing cumulative revelation. We get a clearer and fuller picture of what God meant with those earlier prophecies uh, as they related to the Messiah. So another important passage. These um, passages from Isaiah are favorites in Handel's Messiah. Okay, and you can probably hear the music as, as you're reading through this uh, because they are such um, uh, fundamental passages for the messianic hope. Okay, so that's the first section of Isaiah. Now let's continue to the second section, chapters 40 to 66, as it looks ahead, anticipating the exile, anticipating the captivity in Babylon. And by the way, in chapters 36 to 39, the last chapters of the first section, what you have is Hezekiah, faithful Hezekiah, but sometimes misstepping. Hezekiah welcomes the envoy from Babylon. And so you've got representatives from Babylon. Babylon is not much of a power yet. Assyria is still the big guy on campus, okay, still the superpower. Babylon is really not much at this time. And uh, so um, Hezekiah is making good relations with Babylon, possibly an ally eventually against Assyria, entertaining that. Instead of simply trusting the Lord to protect, Hezekiah is looking to some alliances. And while these ambassadors, the envoy from Babylon come, Hezekiah decides, well, I kind of want to put my best foot forward and make an impression, so I'll show them the treasury. <laughs> I'll show them all the gold and silver and treasures that we have. Show them our Fort Knox, okay? And uh, the treasury that would have been located in the temple compound Show them that. And Isaiah says, not a smart move. And he says, one day 
these same people, not those individuals, but the Babylonians will come back and they will take this treasure. They'll take it. And so the latter part there of that first section in chapters 36 to 39, there's a foretelling of the coming judgment and a specific identification that it will be at the hand of the Babylonians. And so it's a wonderful transitional place then for Isaiah now to move into this second section speaking comfort, hope to those who will find themselves under the captivity of the Babylonians, plundered by the Babylonians, taken into exile by the Babylonians. And there are two significant themes here in chapters 40 to 66. The first one is the theme of a new exodus. The second one is what we call the servant songs. The new exodus, essentially, God says, I will bring you out of Babylon just like I brought you out of Egypt in the Exodus. And I will make a path, a road for you to travel to return to the promised land. Just as I guided you through the wilderness from Egypt, I will guide you now through this wilderness back to the promised land. So it's that promise. And so that's, this is what we hear if you want to turn to chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Remember, we're now moved, no longer afflicting the comfortable. Now we've moved to comforting the afflicted, comforting those who will uh, be in exile in preparation for that. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Okay, the judgment has fallen on her. Now there's repentance and so there's forgiveness. Then verse three, a voice cries, in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So uh, this is the road for the Lord to travel. But it's also the Lord, the road that the Lord will lead his people into deliverance. Okay. Now, where do we hear those words again? What was that again? John the Baptist. Yes, John the Baptist. So, uh, just as here, a road is made for Yahweh, but it's the road upon which he delivers his people out of captivity. So John the Baptist also is identified with this. A road for Yahweh. Prepare the way for Yahweh, but 
because Yahweh will come in the person of Jesus Christ to deliver his people out of the captivity of sin. So a more full fulfillment later on. Okay, oh, here it is. Uh, this is another passage then that you need to uh, be aware of, uh, that it's found in Isaiah, and um, maybe some of the context in which it's speaking here that return from exile. Comforting the afflicted. Okay. Um, also associated with this now, Isaiah says, God will deliver his people from Babylon, and there's nothing that the Babylonians can do about it. In spite of their expectation that they are uh, the great world power uh, at that time, their gods are nothing. Their gods are simply statues made out of wood, out of stone, and they are nothings. There's only one true God, Yahweh, and he will do according to his will, and it is his will to deliver these people. The gods of the Babylonians can't stand in the way because they are nothings. Okay. So, uh, in Isaiah chapter 44, you have, uh, again, a highly eloquent oracle uh, speaking against the folly and futility of depending on idols, false gods. And he says, all who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. So he's saying just, you know, it makes no sense. You go and you take a log and uh, you chisel away and half of it you burn in the fire as worthless and the other half you honor as deity. Go figure, that makes no sense. So he's, he's mocking this approach. From the rest he makes a god, his idol, he bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. So it's an indictment of the folly and futility of idolatry. But it's also a message of comfort and hope, saying the Babylonian gods can't stand in the way of my deliverance of you because they're nothings. They're nobodies. Uh, he then goes on to affirm, the reason why this will happen is because I'm the god not just of Palestine, of Judah. I'm the God of the world. I've created the universe, and I'm all-powerful. Okay. So uh, again, in chapter 44, I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited, of the towns of Judah, they shall be built. So he's saying here, Whatever I say will happen. I'm the God whose word created the world, the galaxies. When my word went forth, it happened. And my word will go forth saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited. Judah shall be rebuilt. It's going to happen. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I must have not made the correction there. 
Okay, um, the, the one with the idols here is correct, but uh, the one uh, regarding the return to exile starts with verse 24. Okay. Notice then, he also says, I'm the God who determines the events of history, of world events of great magnitude. And I'm the one who raises up instruments for my will. And one who I will raise up is Cyrus. I am the Lord who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be built, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. So the Lord will work through this pagan ruler, Cyrus, who is the ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire that will defeat the Babylonians, will overtake the Babylonians, and uh, in five. 39, uh, 538 will make an edict for the Jews to return back or the Judahites to return back to Jerusalem and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. So uh, he names specifically his instrument for deliverance. And he says he is his shepherd. And in chapter 35 then he goes on to even call Cyrus his anointed one is Mashiach, the one he anoints and appoints to do his will. Okay, and then um, we're not going to go into all the details of the symbolism here, but Yahweh says, I am bringing you back here in this new exodus back to your land so that you can carry out your original purpose and mission to be a light to the nations to be blessings to the nations, to be a light to the Gentiles. I'm bringing you back for that original purpose. Remember the calling of Abraham uh, to, so that all the nations of the earth might be blessed. So calling him back for that mission. And uh, this is made clear in Isaiah chapter 60, another important passage for you to um, be able to identify. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Nations will come to your light, should be your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Although you have been forsaken and hated with no one traveling through, I will make you an everlasting pride and the joy of all generations. So he's saying, I'm bringing you back. You had been forsaken and, and hated. But now I'm making you the light to all the nations. Okay? My glory will shine in the midst of you, among you, Emmanuel, God with you, with us. But my light will shine through you. And others will be attracted to that. Uh, again, a reference to the universal mission here. And the way that Israel now is to be a priesthood to all the nations to mediate the light of Christ, the light of God to the world.